The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Linda House, the Executive Vice President of External Affairs at the Cancer Support Community, and I am filling in for Kim Tebaldo, who is the President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, who happens to be off today. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 100 170 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org and a telephone helpline, and I will repeat this number later, but that number is 888-793-9355. Today we're going to talk about pancreatic cancer, and pancreatic cancer is one of the most aggressive forms of cancer with the lowest five-year survival rate of all cancers. Yet despite this, it is increasingly becoming recognized as a treatable disease because of ongoing education and research. November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, and it's a time for survivors, patients, and organizations to speak out and raise awareness for this particular disease. I wanted to introduce two guests today. We're very excited to have um, two people who are intimately uh, involved with pancreatic cancer and an organization that's... I'm particularly fond of the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, and I've worked with them for, oh, goodness, about 18 years now, since their beginning, whenever whenever it started. So um, just to get to that, I'd like to welcome Maya Urkus. And Maya is an eight-year pancreatic cancer survivor, and you're also a volunteer with PanCan, where you do a number of different roles within the organization, and you're going to tell us about those in just a few minutes. So thank you so much for joining us, Maya. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And we also have Dr. Vincent Picozzi, who is the chair of the Scientific and Medical Advisory Board at the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. And you are also the director of pancreatic can- the Pancreatic Cancer Center of Excellence at Virginia Mason Medical Center. Thank you for being here, Dr. Picozzi. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So I feel like we should give our listeners a little background on pancreatic cancer. Many people may have heard about it because of some of the celebrity presence, Steve Jobs and others. Um, but let's really start with some of the basics. And Dr. Pocosi, just start off by telling us what is pancreatic cancer? Well, maybe I should start, Linda, by telling everybody what the pancreas is. Um, the pancreas Perfect. is an organ um, as a part of your uh, gastrointestinal system that helps us digest food. And it secretes enzymes and hormones uh, to assist in that task with other organs uh, in the GI tract. And when we refer to pancreatic cancer, 
uh, we're talking about a cancer that arises uh, from the pancreas, from that organ. Uh, it turns out that there are two types of pancreatic cancer. Uh, one type is referred to as adenocarcinoma uh, or an adenocarcinoma of the pancreas. Uh, and this is the way we colloquially refer to pancreatic cancer. It's the form of cancer that, say, um, uh, someone like uh, Patrick Swayze had. Uh, but there is another form of pancreatic cancer uh, which arises from the uh, endocrine cells within the pancreas or cells that make hormones. Uh, that is also pancreatic cancer, but it's referred to as pancreatic neuroendocrine cancer. Um, it's the cancer that, say, uh, Stephen Jobs had. And so the, there are two different types of cancer that arise from the pancreas, uh, uh, but it's important to know they have very different biologies, very different treatments, and there's a very different approach to each. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, a couple things I want to get into about each of those. You know, so what are, what are the risk factors and um, some additional unique attributes diagnosis are they diagnosed different are there risk factors that are different from the from the two of those so when we speak of uh, pancreatic cancer again we're more commonly referring to the first type and there are Mm -hmm. risk factors for that Uh, uh, about 10 percent of patients have a familial history and that can either be something that is related to a specific genetic syndrome for example it turns out there are certain patients who have a genetic predisposition to breast cancer that are also predisposed to pancreatic cancer. Uh, furthermore, um, there are patients who have no identifiable genetic syndrome, but can be uh, designated to be at risk because they have two or more first-degree family members that contain that have had pancreatic cancer. So, by a first-degree family member, I mean a, um, a a parent, a sibling, a child. So, if you have two or more such patients, people like that in your family or a person or a first-degree family member who's under the age of 50 with pancreatic cancer, uh, those represent um, a familial risk. And so it's appropriate to consider some specialized screening if that's the case. So 10% of people with pancreatic cancer have that background. About another 30% are thought to have a, an environmental uh, exposure risk, and of which the most important one is cigarette smoking. And so that is actually the single biggest environmental risk for pancreatic cancer. Um, and it, it increases the more you smoke. Uh, another set of environmental risks that are very important in pancreatic cancer are being overweight and being diabetic. Those things have also been shown to relate to pancreatic cancer risk. So it turns out that between the 10% of people who have a familial basis uh, and additional 30% of people with an environmental cause, um, about 40% of people with pancreatic cancer uh, of the more common variety, uh, do have, uh, you know, some factor in their background that can be uh, mitigated. I guess I'll use that word. However, that means that 60% of people still have no identifiable risk and, and yet are diagnosed. Uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine cancer is a rarer form of cancer. Uh, there are uh, genetic syndromes that are associated with that, um, but um, the, in terms of uh, environmental causes, uh, not nearly so much is known. Okay. And then, and then talk to us about diagnosis. Well, one of the big challenges with pancreatic cancer is that it is uh, very hard to diagnose, and it's frequently diagnosed in a very late stage of the disease. And so one of the, one of the goals of uh, managing pancreatic cancer going forward is to discover it at an earlier point in time. So, so the question is, why, why is it that it's so hard to diagnose? And, and I think there are multiple reasons for that. One is that the symptoms of pancreatic cancer can be very subtle, can be drawn out over a number of months, and are overlapping with other conditions. Uh, a vague abdominal pain, a moderate degree of nausea, 
a change in your taste buds. Now, all can be symptoms of pancreatic cancer, but symptoms of many other things. So it can be hard for a doctor to distinguish that that's really what's happening. Uh, secondly, a, a problem is that pancreatic cancer tends to spread at a very, very early point in time. And it turns out that if you have a, a very tiny cancer of uh, less than half an inch in size, it turns out that it's already spread about 70 to 75% of the time. So, so it, it spreads at a, very, at a very early point, which means by the time it is diagnosed, it's, it's already at, at an advanced stage of biology. Um, and finally, I think um, a factor, Linda, is that um, it's a diagnosis that doctors have to actively seek, actively think about. Um, it, although the incidence of pancreatic cancer in our population is surprisingly high, it's about one in 70 or 75 people will develop pancreatic cancer during the course of their lifetime. The prevalence of pancreatic cancer or the, the probability of, of a doctor seeing it at a given point in time is much less. And so given the fact that it's hard to diagnose and given the fact that it tends to present at a late stage, um, it sometimes is hard for doctors to focus on that as a, as a possibility. So I think those are all reasons that contribute to the difficulty of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. All right. And, um, you know, at some point in time, I, I want to come back in, in one of our later segments and talk to you about patients and how we can um, encourage patients to be a, a part of that conversation. Um, but Maya, I just wanted to go to you at this point in time. And, you know, I introduced you as a pancreatic cancer survivor of eight years. And you are a, a dedicated volunteer for uh, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. But I'd love to hear from you a little about your story. Well, so much of what Dr. Pacozzi spoke of was really applicable to me. I'm not diabetic. I'm not overweight. I was not a smoker. What I experienced in the months leading up to my diagnosis was really a very, very vague um, feeling of discomfort around the bra line, lower back. Um, If I took ibuprofen, it actually subsided, so I didn't think too much of it. And again, to what Dr. Pacozzi said, a lot of medical specialists don't really recognize the presence of the disease early on. I feel very fortunate because I had a long-term relationship with my internist, and he really was very astute to uh, require further testing, which after a multitude of tests ultimately led to the diagnosis and ultimately led to my meeting Dr. Pacozzi, who I really do credit for saving my life, and I'm thrilled to be here with him eight years later. Um, my uh, experience was that it was, you know, quite a shocking revelation because I was only 52, very healthy, very physically active, and to learn that one has pancreas cancer is pretty daunting. And uh, I actually did not know what the pancreas does, and I thought, well, you can maybe just yank the thing out, but it's not as simple as that. So I am one of the very fortunate. You mentioned uh, the five-year survival rate at a mere 6%. Here I am eight years later. I've not had any treatment for nearly seven years. Uh, My circumstance is probably pretty rare because my diagnosis was an unresectable tumor in the neck of the pancreas. And uh, with the treatment that I initially received from Dr. Pacozzi, it actually sort of slipped away into oblivion. I think it surprised you as well. <laughs> um, and so because as Dr. Pacozzi refers to it, my unique situation, I continue to have CT scans every six months just to 
monitor and make sure that the little devil doesn't appear someplace else in my system. I did have a reoccurrence about 15 months after my initial treatment where it had moved into a lymph node above my clavicle. And in my case, because I did so well with uh, radiation therapy and chemotherapy, we opted to have the same treatment on that second occurrence. And so, like I said, I've not had any further treatments. I don't take any medication for the disease since January of 2008. So I am indeed very, very fortunate and very grateful to Dr. Picosi and his team at Virginia Mason Medical Center here in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And thank you for sharing that. And I, I have a ton of questions for you, but I think I am going to go to just a quick commercial break, and we are going to pick up with you, Maya, sharing a little bit more about your experience. And Dr. Picosi, I'm hoping that you could uh, some, shed some light on, on some, some questions that I have about, about Maya's experience. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored by Celgene, Lilly Oncology, and Onyx. We have to take a commercial break right now. We will be right back, and you'll hear more from our guests shortly. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, and we are talking about pancreatic cancer in honor of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, which is the month of November. When we went to a commercial break, Maya, you were sharing a little bit about your uh, your experience and how you were surprised by the diagnosis. Your symptoms wouldn't have led you to really think about pancreatic cancer. You know, I'd love for you to share with our listeners, what did you do in that window of time when you were going through your work up and maybe even making your treatment decisions um, to help be a part of that process, to help 
you know, ha- make an informed decision to help challenge your physicians or work with your physicians to make sure that you were you were getting the type of of, of diagnosis um, or diagnostic test that you felt like you you needed. Sure. Well, it was a journey, and I do believe that an individual needs to be uh, very personally involved in that path. In my instance, I was diagnosed at a medical center where I was receiving my primary care. And the oncologist who presented the diagnosis was really very new as an oncologist. And he actually had the courage to suggest that perhaps he was not the best suited to treat this disease. So right away, I really appreciated that. Um, We sought out a second opinion. And in that particular instance, I didn't feel a connection with that doctor. And as it turns out, knowing what I know now, the treatment that I would have been offered, I'm sure I would not be here eight years later. It was really a palliative treatment course. And because I didn't feel a connection and my husband and my best friend also didn't feel it was a good fit, we um, physically walked over to Dr. Picozzi's office because we had heard his name whispered in the wind in many ways uh, and sat down and made an appointment. And what was impressive was how quickly at Virginia Mason you do get in to see the oncologist. Um, in the prior days, we'd also visited with two different surgeons, so I already knew that I was not a likely candidate for the Whipple surgery. And um, so I met with Dr. Picozzi, and um, we made a connection. And I I think that it's really important to feel like you're working with somebody who can be a true partner for you because hopefully it's going to be a long-term relationship. And you really need to have trust and confidence in that person. Um, You asked me about selecting the treatment. I really felt that once Dr. Picozzi met me and ran his own battery of diagnostics because he really wanted to make absolute certain that he was truly dealing with pancreas cancer, mm-hmm. he made the recommendation, and I think he could probably speak to it more eloquently than I, but I think he sized up my physical capabilities, my emotional capability, my support group, and really determined that at that time I was a good candidate for his most aggressive treatment regimen. Mm-hmm. Agree with that, Dr. Picozzi? I would, Maya. So, Dr. Picozzi, could you say a little bit more? I know that pancreatic cancer is one of the cancers that is often misdiagnosed. And I know that there are some there are stats out of a, a medical center on the East Coast where I, I want to say that it's around 30% of the patients that come to them with a diagnosis of pancreas cancer are misdiagnosed. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to, you know, why that is and, and what steps patients and physicians should take to make sure that they do have an accurate diagnosis and what, what does the impact of the diagnosis have on treatment options? Well, I think there are really um, three reasons for that, Linda. The first is that, as we talked about earlier, the symptoms of pancreatic cancer are um, very varied, uh, can be very uh, elusive, uh, overlap with other conditions, and so though although it may seem obvious that that should be a consideration, uh, many times for patients and doctors it isn't. And if I could just give the yourself and the audience a, a bit of advice, uh, what I advise to patients is, is if you have abdominal pain uh, with any combination of these other symptoms, uh, weight loss, 
uh, the development of jaundice, uh, a new onset or change in diabetic management, or an episode of pancreatitis. Any combination of those things should really trigger pancreatic cancer as a diagnosis. So the first is that the symptoms sometimes are hard to make a connection with. The second is that pancreas cancer is sometimes surprisingly difficult to diagnose from an X-ray. Uh, it turns out that if you use a standard CT scan, uh, pancreatic cancer will be invisible on a standard CT scan up to 40% of the time. Hmm. So if you're suspicious of pancreatic cancer, you need to use uh, special scanning techniques, special CT scanning techniques, special use of ultrasound, such as through an endoscope. You need to um, uh, make your uh, lens sharper, so to speak, in order to find it in some cases. Uh, and that means you need to have a suspicion. It also means you need to have the techniques available to you, and you need to have people, radiologists, gastroenterologists, who are capable in that regard. The third thing is pancreatic cancer, like any cancers, uh, really requires uh, a tissue diagnosis. In other words, you have to do a biopsy of the tumor, have a pathologist uh, look in the microscope and say, yes, this is pancreatic cancer. Now, it turns out that usually a, a, a biopsy uh, or, or tissue diagnosis can be obtained fairly facilely, uh, but occasionally uh, that doesn't work out in the first attempt, and occasionally actually that step is forgotten. And so it's very important, I think, that patients insist that the diagnosis is proven uh, before treatment moves forward because, as we've said, there are other forms of pancreatic cancer and other disease in the pancreas that can mimic it that are not pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. And then, so can you speak to um, the, the types of treatments that are available once you have a diagnosis? So um, when you have pancreatic cancer, um, the uh, first decision is to determine, once you know you have it, mm-hmm. whether the cancer is confined to the pancreas, and the word we use for that is localized, or it's spread someplace else in your body, which means it's metastatic. And it turns out for all types of pancreatic cancer patients, uh, drug therapy, systemic therapy, chemotherapy, mostly, although there are new types of therapies that are being introduced, is an essential part of the treatment. Because we talked before, Linda, about the fact that the cancer spreads at a very early point in time, many times before the cancer is even able to be detected in the pancreas, so that virtually all patients have some risk or some evidence of spread, whether you can see it or not. Now, for patients with metastatic disease, which means the cancer is visible someplace else, unfortunately, because the disease already spread in a meaningful way, uh, treatments such as surgery and uh, radiation therapy are not uh, as useful because they focus on one part of the body, the pancreas, as opposed to throughout the body. So for patients with metastatic pancreatic cancer, uh, the focus is on, on drug therapy. For patients with localized pancreatic cancer, the question is, can the cancer be removed surgically, either initially or after some preliminary treatment? Because um, as a, a general rule, and I'm smiling as I say this because I'm looking at a person who was the exception to the rule, um, surgery is necessary but not sufficient for curative treatment. So, so once the cancer is known to be localized, then the next question we ask ourselves is, could the cancer, is the cancer, could the cancer be removed surgically? What's the best pathway for that? Because that then will um, uh, establish the, the, the course towards a permanent cure. So for patients with localized disease, drug therapy, chemotherapy, important. Surgery, important to whoever can undergo it with uh, success. Um, and then radiation therapy is used um, in certain circumstances uh, to augment the effects of the other treatments. 
So that's a lot for a patient to take in. When they hear those words, you have, you have cancer. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, what advice do you, Dr. Picozzi, have for patients who may be sort of swimming in this sea of information and decision-making uh, as they think about choosing their healthcare team and then also as they think about having conversations with you? What's, what's helpful to you in that scenario? So that's a great question, Linda, that we could spend probably the whole rest of the hour on that, but let me uh, give a few words of advice uh, to the listening audience. Uh, first of all, I, I feel very strongly that uh, patients with pancreatic cancer, uh, particularly if there's potential for treatment with curative intent, should be seen at a, a center of excellence, um, a, a place that has a, a large volume of patients that they see, uh, a place that has a variety of different forms of medical expertise, not just medical oncology, but surgical oncology, radiation oncology, sophisticated gastroenterology, sophisticated radiology and pathology, because it really takes many, many different types of doctors to uh, produce a successful outcome. Uh, a second thing is uh, to uh, engage uh, centers that have a reputation for pursuing clinical research and clinical trials, because those are the centers that tend to be at the forefront uh, of treatment. And of course, in pancreatic cancer, we're always looking for a better tomorrow. And so it's very important to seek out places that can offer some form of investigative treatment um, beyond what would be a standard. Um, I think uh, other forms of resource uh, that are important are uh, to talk to other patients that have been have had experience, like Maya, uh, because they can be very uh, useful in um, in guiding people through what is, um, from an outsider's point of view, a maze of medical care. And here's where the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, I think, is particularly useful. They have a program called the PALS program, and any person across the United States can call them, and they offer a variety of services, including educational materials, um, access to a clinical trials registry that I think is the best one in the United States. They will even arrange a PALS for you if you want just someone to talk to who's had the experience, and, uh, and particularly if you're in a more remote area, they will actually arrange for you to speak to another patient to ask the questions that you want to. So those would be some, some general pointers that may be of use. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, Maya, I'm going to just ask for you. To, we've got just about two minutes before we go to break, but I'm going to ask you to sort of um, piggyback onto what Dr. Pacozzi has just shared with us from the patient lens. Um, you know, when you were thinking about choosing your healthcare team and preparing for your medical appointments, you know, you went over that briefly, but, you know, really what, what was sort of going through your mind and what might you have done uh, differently? Well, I, I had terrific support, so I'll just share some other things, like you said, to piggyback on what Dr. Pacozzi said. I think, for one, it's very important for a patient not to have those discussions about treatment and options by themselves. Um, in my case, my best friend Jan always joined me as well as my husband Al. And uh, Jan, being a very organized individual, as Dr. Pacozzi knows, was always there with her laptop taking copious notes. And as we said, there's so much information to absorb, you really need to capture that. Um, I also think it's important as a patient to be a collector of all the printed materials, all the diagnostic tests that are given to you, and don't hesitate to ask questions. You know, if there are things you don't fully comprehend, ask questions. I have, after eight years, a very thick binder on all of my CT scans, my blood workups, and... um, You know, I kind of take pride in monitoring my own progress and understanding what those diagnostics are really revealing. 
Um, I also think one thing that's really important is for patients to consider using a website like Caring Bridge. Um, there are a number of them out there. In my case, eight years ago, a friend of mine set up a blog, and that was my way of keeping family and friends and neighbors informed of what was going on. It can be very draining to have to repeat the story over and over to well-meaning people who want to call and wish you well. And so I think having a vehicle to keep interested parties updated is a healthy way to deal with that without becoming completely drawn into the drama on a daily basis. Um, so I always recommend that to people as well. Uh, my two best friends, Jan and Anne, were instrumental as lions guarding the gate. And they actually counseled other friends who were devastated by the diagnosis and basically told them, until you can buck up, you can't see Maya because she doesn't need any negativity. So um, it's just good to have those kind of caregivers who actually look out for your mental well-being as well as your physical well-being. Great. Those are great, great tips. And we're going to continue on with more of those um, right after this break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. This episode is sponsored in part by ASI, Genentech, and Amgen. We will be back right after this. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your co-host today, Linda House, and we are talking about pancreatic cancer. November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, and we've spent a good bit of time today learning about what is the pancreas, what are the treatments, um, how is it diagnosed, ways in which patients can become empowered um, in the conversations they have with their healthcare professionals. And just to remind you, our guests today, we have Maya Urkus, who is an eight-year pancreatic cancer survivor and also a very um, active and vibrant volunteer with an advocacy group that I work a lot with, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. And Maya is joined by Dr. Vincent Picozzi, who is the chair of the Uh, Pancreatic Cancer Action Network Scientific Medical Advisory Board and also the director of the Pancreatic Cancer Center of Excellence at the Virginia Mason Medical Center. And when we left you, Maya was just sharing with us some of um, her amazing friends and the way in which they rallied around her and her particular needs during her diagnosis and and treatment. And um, Maya, I think you had some really great uh, great points for our listeners um, in that conversation. So could you could you say more about um, you know as you're going through your treatment process? Um, and and I don't remember you saying how long your treatment lasted. My initial treatment was a five and a half week regimen, which consisted of. Uh, radiation therapy, uh, 24-7, 5-FU uh, chemo pump, uh, supplemented by a weekly infusion of an additional chemo, and I had interferon shots three times a week. So mm-hmm. it was very intense, and um, I became rather zombie-like about the third week into it, but I felt like I was well-prepared for what to expect because of um, Dr. Picozzi's discussion around it and also the help from his nursing staff. So nothing really came as a surprise. What I will say, having met many other patients throughout the years, is that everybody's uh, side effects and reactions seem to be different. And so I just think it's also very important to be with a team that can treat side effects and anticipate what those could be like, because I think sometimes they tend to feel worse than the disease itself. Um, As time went on, I uh, did ultimately have hair loss, which I didn't find to be very disturbing since I got several darling wigs and my uh, fingernails rotted and got smelly and fell off and so I just wore acrylic nails and uh, one of the things that I kind of looked back on in uh, retrospect is that when you're going through something like this, it's still important to maintain the other aspects of your health, you know, like still, you know, go to the dentist and try to get the exercise that you can to the degree that you have the energy to do so. You know, make plans for the future. Don't just think that, okay, I might not be here in six months, so why would I plan a vacation a year from now? I think that um, having fun things to look forward to in the coming future is really important. Um, As a side note, my dear friend Anne decided that she wanted to do something very positive around this disease. And so about um, eight months after my diagnosis, she kind of almost single-handedly that first year put on a gala called the Celebration of Hope. And uh, we have continued that tradition. We'll be going into our ninth year next June. So it was just a wonderful way to uh, celebrate life, raise money for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network and the much-needed research, 
and have something positive for the group of friends to get involved with and get behind. So I just think it's important to look at ways to continue to lead your life with an element of normalcy and find fun in the little things and the big things and not allow the diagnosis and the treatments just to get you down and cause you to go into a hole and hibernate from the rest of the world. Dr. Picozzi, I want to just kind of reroute uh, reroute our conversation a little bit in that, and, and Maya touched on this a little bit, um, research. And I know I know that's near and dear to your heart, and I know that it's really important to the mission of uh, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. So can you share with us a little bit about what is ongoing in uh, pancreatic cancer research? Happy to do so. I, I, let me mention that um, <clears throat> the network recently has um, uh, de- uh, developed a new catchphrase, which is, wage hope, which I think speaks aptly to working in pancreatic cancer. And certainly uh, essential to waging hope is providing opportunities for uh, therapies that are uh, better, more successful than the ones we've known. So uh, there's a tremendous uh, research portfolio that is expanding worldwide that the network is intimately involved in, um, and it takes on many different forms. One form is that uh, is the search for new and better drugs to treat pancreatic cancer. Uh, because um, we talked about the fact that the disease almost always spreads in some fashion, whether you can see it or not. So key to success in terms of prolonging life and curing pancreatic cancer is to find better agents that work across your whole body. We've relied on chemotherapy in the past, but happily now we have a number of new types of drugs uh, uh, that are just being developed um, uh, really as we speak for pancreatic cancer that offer hope in a, a different way. And, and for example, uh, we are uh, looking to harness the immune system to attack pancreatic cancer. There are a number of exciting research initiatives in pancreatic cancer for this. Some of them are borrowed from other cancers. Some of them are unique to pancreatic cancer. Another unique thing about pancreatic cancer is that it, it forms a scar called a stroma around it. And it turns out that the cancer and the stroma have an intimate uh, symbiotic biological relationship where one depends on the other. So another new class of agents in pancreatic cancer are ones that actually treat the, don't actually treat the cancer itself, but treat the stroma uh, in an attempt to uh, break down the biology of the cancer. And there are two or three drugs that are very exciting there. A third major uh, area of development are looking at drugs that attack what are known as stem cells. Stem cells are cells that give rise to all the other cancer cells. They're like the ancestor cells or grandparent cells or originator cells. And those cells, which make up only a small fraction of a cancer, um, unfortunately, in addition to giving rise to the others, tend to be resistant to other therapies as we know them, chemotherapy, radiation therapy. And so there are some attempts to try to... um, to uh, develop therapies specifically for stem cells, then then hopefully will have an amplifying effect on the cancer as a whole. So those are some examples of of new drugs that are being developed and and ways of looking at old drugs in new ways and different combinations. So a tremendous amount uh, going on in terms of new drug therapies, and again, not just chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer. I think also very exciting, uh, particularly for people with localized disease, are greater insights in terms of how therapies are integrated. We talked before about the fact that chemotherapy, surgery, radiation therapy are all used, and so we're learning much more about how to integrate those treatments, to use them in what sequence, to use them in what fashion, modifying the surgical approach, modifying the radiation approach, 
And so how can we take all the tools, employing immunotherapy, I'll say, in that situation too. And so how can we take all the tools at our disposal and use them for maximum benefit? So uh, with all of that, there is a tremendous amount of uh, activity uh, in research uh, throughout the United States and, and worldwide. Mm-hmm. And so could you just speak to, you know, the conversation about uh, deciding about treatment options? How would a patient know about clinical trials and how would they engage in a conversation with their healthcare team about whether they would be a candidate for a clinical trial? Tremendous question, Linda. And, and I think there are two uh, things that really every patient should do. Uh, one is to speak to the provider directly about clinical trials. Um, do you participate? Do you have a trial for me? Uh, that's one way. And then the second way is to perform a broader search beyond that institution as to what trials may exist. And here's actually where the, um, again, the pancreatic cancer X-Net work is, is really helpful. Uh, if you contact them through their PALS program, they will do a search that is individualized to your needs. And so you can call them up and say, okay, I'm a patient living in Los Angeles and I have a localized pancreatic cancer that the doctors don't feel is surgically operable. Um, I'm willing to travel up to 500 miles from Los Angeles to seek investigational treatment. What options can I access? And they, they will do that for you. They will um, tell you of all the trials you might be eligible for, um, and they will, in fact, give you the contact information. So, so uh, speaking to your own provider about it, but also speaking beyond your provider, I think both are useful. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you. And then, Maya, just a quick question to you. You know, I often wonder when patients are first diagnosed, do you realize that clinical trials um, are, are an option for you, or is that something that came into your conversation um, over time? Well, looking back eight years ago, the clinical trials were not nearly as prevalent as they are today, and now they're highly touted and publicized by the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. To echo what Dr. Percozzi said, I think contacting PALS is really the best way to understand the full spectrum that's available out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, we are going to go to our final commercial break. We will be back to talk more about support that's available. We'd like to hear a little bit more about the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network um, and other topics right after this Break. Today's show is being sponsored in part by AstraZeneca, Millennium, the Takeda Oncology Company, and Purdue Pharma. We will see you in just a minute. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, 
how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your guest host today, Linda House, and today we are talking about pancreatic cancer. And we just left off with talking a little bit about clinical trials and how you would get additional information about clinical trials. And two of our guests have mentioned, in particular, the work that the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network does in helping patients find um, clinical trials for them. But this is not the only thing that the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network does. And Maya, as a volunteer with them, I'd love for you to share a little bit more more information about what it is they do and what it is that you do as a volunteer for them. Thank you, Linda. Well, foremost, I'd like to say that every state in the United States has representation in an affiliate chapter of the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. So I think if people would like to make some local connections and get local support, um, that's a great way to do it. And, you know, they can just go to www.pancan.org and find what is going on in their state or their locale. It can just be a tremendous uh, feeling of family and community and support. I am um, the advocacy coordinator for our local affiliate. And what that means is that I engage our affiliate volunteers to get involved with their elected officials, both at the federal and the local level. It's really important that we create awareness and um, it's perhaps not known that still the bulk of medical research funding comes from the federal government. And that really is at risk with um, the results of sequestration. So we lobby our elected officials as a grassroots effort to maintain the funding levels that are so much needed for this disease. Uh, One of our greatest accomplishments was to get President Obama to sign the Recalcitrant Cancer Research Act, which took place just two years ago. Um, Now that that act is in place, we need to make sure that we are able to see the action plan of that act to come to life, and funding, of course, is a very important element of that. I'm also involved in PALS, which we've talked about, as a member of the Survivor Network, and I probably find some of my most rewarding work in that because through PALS, I am put in touch with new patients and their families who are just so hungry for information and for an opportunity to talk to somebody who's been through the journey. And I think more than anything, um, it really provides hope to be able to talk to patients who have survived and are thriving and um, can offer just some a voice, just a human touch to the disease. So 
those are some ways that I think the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, both locally and nationally, really makes a tremendous impact. Um, and again, I'll just say that the foremost thing I recommend to any new patient and their families is to contact PALS. Um, their phone number is 877-272-6226, just a tremendously supportive resource. Great. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Picozzi, can you speak a little bit about um, why pancreatic cancer research has not received as much funding as some of the other types of cancer? That's a very interesting question, Linda. And uh, I think to understand it, you need to appreciate the central role of our government in cancer research. Uh, the monies that are granted to cancer researchers uh, through the National Institute of Health and the National Cancer Institute uh, really provide the keystone uh, to all of their funding mechanisms, including those that come from pharmaceutical industry, those that come from foundations and private donors. Um, and so that's, that really lays the, the, the framework, the, the foundation for further funding. It turns out that uh, pancreatic cancer has been very poorly funded uh, by, over time, by the NCI uh, with respect to pancreatic cancer. I think there are several reasons for that. One is that, um, unfortunately, until recently, not a lot about the more basic biology of pancreatic cancer was known uh, to provide a stimulus for writing research grants. Um, But there are also a number of aspects of the process itself that impair funding for pancreatic cancer. There are relatively few experts in pancreatic cancer as compared to other cancers. And so in the clamor for research dollars, the voices of people expert in pancreas cancer tend not to be heard. Um, like all things uh, in our government, they operate on a, a political cycle, um, and it's important to uh, show short-term gain. Um, and in point of fact, um, it's very difficult to do that in pancreatic cancer. It's easier to do it in other cancers. And so um, because of the challenge of the, of the, of the problem, um, it hasn't really gotten, I believe, the attention that it should have gotten uh, from, uh, from our, uh, our government. Um, because of those reasons, because of the difficulty uh, of the process, both scientifically and politically. But with the Calcium Cancer Research Act, as Maya has mentioned, there's been new interest um, at the NCI for pancreatic cancer. Uh, The funding levels are doing relatively well compared to other cancers, although not well in an absolute sense. It's still funded at only pennies on the dollar compared to other cancers. But the hope is that uh, with time, uh, with greater investment of uh, not just... um, uh, uh, finances, but talent and, and interest that uh, a, a broader, uh, more overarching strategic plan to uh, tackling and beating pancreas cancer can be developed. Mm-hmm. So, Maya, I understand um, that these awareness months are incredibly important to you. And, you know, one of your partners for the Recalcitrant Cancer uh, Act was uh, lung cancer and the lung cancer groups. And it happens to be Lung Cancer Awareness Month as well in November. But could you just share with our listeners, you know, really what is the importance of the awareness months? Yeah, that's a great question, Linda. I think it foremost is a real opportune time to initiate dialogue and engagement with within all of our communities. Um, those of us who uh, wage hope for the cause, we like to wear purple, which is our color throughout the month. And I might mention to people that if they go to pancan.org, there is a shop purple store where you can get everything from lawn signs to jewelry to wristbands and T-shirts and hats. So it's a great way to don the purple. 
Um, and beautiful bracelets, I might add. I speak from experience. Beautiful bracelets. <laughs> great. I'm glad you enjoy it. Um, as an example, here in Seattle, our great wheel, the Ferris wheel, was turned purple on pancreatic on um, National Pancreatic. Pancreas Cancer Day on November 13th. Um, it's also a time when we approach our municipalities, our counties, and state government to issue a proclamation proclaiming Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Um, this is just a great way to create that awareness um, at the local community level. And we find that when we go to those city and county council meetings, uh, we always make a connection with people in our elected positions who've been affected by the disease. In fact, Dr. Pacozzi received the proclamation from the city of Mercer Island just a couple of weeks ago and um, gave him an opportunity to say a few words about the importance of that proclamation. So it's a, it's a month where we just really kind of gather the grassroots efforts and get the messaging out there and embrace people who uh, might newly be dealing with the disease as well. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Pacozzi, what does it mean for you for these uh, Awareness Months? I know that it gives you an incredible opportunity to get closer to your patients in some of these events, but in general, what does it mean to you? I think it's absolutely critical, Linda. Um, if we're going to defeat pancreatic cancer, first of all, we have to recognize it um, for what it is. Um, and with that recognition comes a dimension of caring and engagement, and from that dimension of caring and engagement comes the spirit to fight the disease, and from that, um, from that uh, incentive um, and with successes like um, that which Maya's had, um, the faith and the hope to uh, make meaningful strides come forth. So, so really, uh, that sort of grassroots awareness and, and building a sense of hope and optimism around it, I, I feel is the most fundamental task that we face in pancreatic cancer. And I think that's true whether you're a physician, whether you're a patient, whether you are a citizen of our community, uh, whatever level of engagement you have with the process, um, that really is the beginning of all good things. Great. Thank you. And Maya, we are in the final 30 seconds. Can you just quickly give PanCan's telephone number again? Sure. The PALS number is 877-272-6226, and they can also be emailed at pals at pancan.org. Great. Thank you. And thank you both for being with us here today to educate and conform our listeners during and after, because we will archive this for people to listen to anytime, but during Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month and after. Do you have an idea for an episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer? We invite all of our listeners to share with us any topics you would like to hear more about in any one of our upcoming shows. Please send your idea to us at news at cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, you do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs, please visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. You can find a location near you. You can participate in an online group. You can get educational information, or you are free to call our toll-free helpline at one 793 9355 to speak with one of our licensed mental health professionals. And remember that all of this is provided to you free of charge. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. 
Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.